0: Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn or if you have a device there, click your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're without a Bible, there is one provided for you in the seat there. As you can see, page 811 is where you would need to be. We're actually going to read a couple of verses in chapter 9 and then work our way through all the way to verse 14 by way of reading. This is a part 2 of a part 3 sermon that's been working about the privilege of public And personal evangelism. And so while you're turning there, if you're new and we haven't as of yet met, I would be happy to do that if if you would find that necessary. Also, if you have a question about Jesus or about what has taken place here this morning, again, I'd be so happy to speak with you and try to answer those questions for you as well. So we're going to read God's word and then we are going to pray as is our pattern. Verse 26, chapter 9. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, and we could say sisters, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from adultery. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word today. Let's pray, please. Well, Father... Here we are again, just within a day or two, we are reminded of the brevity of life, of the reality of death for all of us, and the certainty of the judgment to come. And so we pray that grace would abound to the Boer family and the passing of Marlon. We pray that same grace would reach the Giffen family as well. And thank you, God, at these times, we know that our only hope in life and death has always been Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and soon returning. Therefore, Father, this morning we ask for Jesus' sake that you would please make this book live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make this book live in us. Because, Father, we believe that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Amen. Well, these past few weeks, we've been working on personal evangelism. And I've been wondering, as we've been singing this morning, I've been wondering, how are we doing? How are we doing with the very clear, basic privilege that every Christian has of taking Jesus out of the church and into the public square? It hasn't been easy Perhaps for some of us over these past few weeks, as we've been working through 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, it hasn't been easy as we've been learning just how serious God is about the expansion of his kingdom by the proclamation of his gospel, by the means of his true children. So we've been learning that in the saving of souls, God works through means, and you and I who name the name of Jesus Christ are those means. Therefore... In a very real sense, it would be so out of place for a Christian as a consistent pattern in life not to personally evangelize. However, only the presumptuous, overconfident, arrogant, self-willed person would not believe all of that. And apparently, in the case of the Corinthian church, there were a group of people just like that. They were presumptuous. They had a line of thinking that basically said, These truths about personal evangelism and the sins which hinder it and the freedoms that I have which I must lose because of it, because they hinder me from receiving that rich welcome in heaven and they hinder me from getting the prize, all those things don't apply to me. Grace makes me free as I want to be. That's what they would say. And besides, you know, I've been around a long time. I've been hearing all these talks before. I haven't changed. Things haven't changed. I'm still standing firm. You see this in verse 12? I'm still standing firm. No way I can fall. Which made, made us ask the question last time, in light of what is written, what would you do if you were God with a people like that? What would you do with a group of people that won't get about their kingdom for Christ's kingdom? What would you do with a presumptuous, obstinate, stubborn person who evidently were Christians? That's verse 1, right? Paul says brothers, brothers and sisters, they were Christians. He's not trying to preach them out of heaven but were being very disobedient in personal evangelism. They, they were really winning no one. Their fleshly sin was not being dealt with. They were running their own ways as they saw fit. Therefore, yes, they'll enter to God's, into, into God's heaven, but 1 Corinthians 3.15, as one barely escaping the flames. So, so I want you to see, this is high-level Christian thinking, is it not? This is not a scare tactic, right? This is the elevation of God, who must be revered and must be obeyed. This is Paul saying to the Corinthian church and saying to all of us here, how deep, just how deep is your love for Christ and the lost? So what Paul did then under God was to remind them that to receive blessings does not mean that you have entered into the privileges and responsibilities of that blessing. That's the first five verses, right? Paul tells them, there were experiences that the people of God went through which we have to acknowledge. and We did this last time. God was so good to his people. He was very good. He saved them by grace in their exodus out of Egypt. Salvation from Egypt. Sea split open, right? Remember the story of bread and meat from heaven. Divine guidance by day, divine guidance by night. He did it all for them. What grace... God lavished on these Israelites. But, verse 5, you see it there. It's a terrifically awful warning. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. In other words, God's judgment came down on them. They never made it into the promised land, most of them. They didn't enter into the privileges of grace. Grace. And so we learned that only two, right, Joshua and Caleb, not Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb entered into the promised land. In fact, every person from that generation that left Egypt, saved Joshua and Caleb, they didn't get to go in. Well, why did God do that, right? Well, this morning we're going to find out. But before we get to that, you are sensible people. I'm sure that you see the connection Paul is making with the past and present and future people of God. God was so good to his people in history. And God has been so good to you in Christ. You Corinthian Christians have been made alive. Think about that. Born again. You were dead, but God gave you a new heart by a spirit, a new heart which would finally say yes to Jesus. And then grace was lavished on you. Adoption, permanent adoption into the very family of God. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Guidance through the very presence of God by His Spirit in Christ. In Christ, connected, if you can believe this, to the triune God. This is our union with Jesus. Provisions daily, which include daily bread and daily forgiveness and daily guidance. The written Word of God with all those promises that we ought to enjoy And then after all that, whenever our time on this earth is done, life, life, eternal life with God forever. And you Corinthians are still running the Christian race all out of sorts. You're running your own way. You're not dealing with sin. You're not dealing with the sins that hinder you and make you ineffective and unwilling and soul-willing. So winning, excuse me, what's the point? Well, I'm going to put some words in Paul's mouth. This is a little bit of presumption. I think Paul would say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're really going to do that? You live with the strength God supplies. But you are using his grace for self-indulgence and pride and presumptuous living. You misrepresent grace. The son gives his life for your sin. He gives you an exodus from God's wrath and you remain in your presumption." You remain unwilling to advance the cause. You remain unwilling to lose your freedoms. You remain uncommitted to effective, consistent, personal evangelism. And I think Paul would say, really? Really? And again, Paul is not trying to preach them out of heaven. He's just preaching to the heart. My wife and I, I know a couple in Texas, and one of the spouses were unfaithful to the other. And the one that received all that horror, I remember she said, I am not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. But why did you do that? You made a promise. We said things together. Why would you do that? And I think it's kind of the same thing here. So. Just as there were experiences here which we must acknowledge, blessings and, and the warning when, when they trifled with God in these things and, and God came down in a mighty judgment. So just as there are experiences we have to acknowledge, there are examples which we must avoid. This is in verse 6 and following. And when you're looking there, it would be a huge mistake to miss the connection between verse 27 of chapter 9 and the list of sins that follow here in verses 6 and following of chapter 10. Because I want you to know these are the sins if we leave unrestrained which would disqualify us from the prize. In other words, these are the sins that get in the way of personal evangelism. These are the sins that don't advance the gospel. These are the sins which would hinder us from advancing the name of Christ. These then are the sins of presumption. These are the who do we think we are? sins in light of such goodness that God has lavished on his people by way of grace through the death of his son. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who, before, who the, before the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. And then it says later on, you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood like the sun. So when Paul writes verse 6, now these things, this is, this is Old Testament history, how good God was and how wicked his people were. Now these things occurred as an example, not to follow, but to keep us. And notice Paul is not presumptuous. He throws himself right in the mix to keep us from setting our hearts after evil things. If you have a King James, I think it says craving after evil things, a much more brutal word. And so Paul says we are all in a perilous position if we allow ourselves the indulgence of thinking that our sin doesn't matter. They do matter because they do disqualify. You see, the people of God who Paul says are the Christian's example here had their hearts which were set towards evil even as they were experiencing the blessing of God, right? So they were stuffing their face with manna. They had meat to eat and they were just eating that and they had the presence of God But at the same time, they craved evil things. So is it possible for for us to have evil hearts while we're worshiping and serving and even experiencing the privileges of grace? Of course it is. Which is why at the end, our works will be tested and we'll give an account for that stuff. I mean, no one ever gets away with anything, right? Either it's laid on Jesus Or it'll be laid on us. Sin number one, which would disqualify us from the prize. Verse seven, the sin of idolatry. I, I I-D-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This comes from Exodus chapter 32. You, You might want to read that maybe this afternoon. Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. Aaron is left in charge. The people come to Aaron because Moses is taking quite a while. They're a bit impatient and they say to Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. Chapter 32, verse one of Exodus. Aaron gives in. Aaron sets his heart on evil. He asks for their jewelry and so forth and a golden calf is produced and notice what Aaron says in verse four of chapter 32 in Exodus. Here are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Okay. Now, you're thinking, there's only one calf there. We saw the movie, right? There's only one calf there. Why did Aaron say God, plural, and not God, singular? Great question. Glad you asked it. Here's the answer. The golden calf was a representation of an Egyptian god. The Israelites took that false god and attached it to the worship of the one true and living God. And they planned to use that calf to worship the one true and living God and the little party that Aaron decided to throw after things were through. Thus, they thought they could use a pagan idol to worship the one true and living God any way they liked. So they didn't believe that it's not enough to worship the right God, but the right God must be worshipped in the right way. They didn't believe that. So they made up their own way. Now let's make the connection, shall we? The city of Corinth was dominated by the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. Thousands of prostitutes roamed the temple and surrounding areas, offering up their evil trade. So the presumptuous Christian was on that kind of line that said, you know what, it's okay, grace is so great that I can be in the temple of Aphrodite on Saturday night just as long as I am in church on a Sunday morning. After all, they said, because of grace, we are free to do what we want in Jesus Christ, which is, of course, a half-truth, which is a big, fat lie. This was the sin, if you're taking notes, of syncretism, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. And the sin of syncretism is when a person makes up their own God, accepting what they like about the God of the Bible, but ignoring and removing what they do not like about the God of the Bible. They thus add to God their personal wants and their personal taste and their personal needs and their personal imaginations of what they think God ought to be like. Therein, they have made a God in their own image. They have a God, frankly, who looks an awful lot like them. Because, you see, the New Testament and the Old Testament is very, very clear. We become like the God we worship. We become like the God we worship. Loved ones, I think this is a good question. What are we becoming? As you think about your, your days and months and years with Jesus, what are we becoming? You'll forgive me. Before my son left for school, there was a few things I said to him. Four things, in fact. I have the liberty of telling you one. I told my son... I said, in light of all that you're going to do and would to God all the successes that God might give you, Jared, like what you become. See that? Like what you become. Do you like what you become? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Question, do you and I have other gods? Having been discontent with the God of the Bible and the blessings that he gives by way of grace, ignoring the routine pathways of love, do we have idols? And an idol is much more than a statue of stone or metal. We can make an idol out of anything. So, do you worship your wife or your husband or your children or grandchildren more than you do God? If they're first, if you do this, that's an idol. Are we worshiping pleasure, ease, job, success, status, athletics, body, mind, bucks, icons, man, uh, women, goals, dreams, hobbies, before God? If we do that, these are idols. Loved one, there is only one God. And we break the first commandment whenever we give to something or someone else other than God, first place in our thoughts, in our affections, and our strength. So, so those list of things that I said, they're not necessarily wrong. It just becomes wrong when God is demoted beneath them. And the dirty little secret about the sin of idolatry is that it is the exaltation of the self at the expense of God. Colossians 3.5 tells us this. In fact, if I'm taking notes, I'd write down Colossians 3.5. Idolatry is simply the sin of greed. I make a God that fits me. I make a God that works for me. I want my God to do what I want to do for me. I am the great I am. Greed. And loved ones, I think I would suggest to you that the sin of is, is is running loose in the West. Why? Well, we become like the God we worship. We become like the God we worship. Take it easy. Relax. You're so great. You deserve it. You you should be first. You are the great I am. There's so much grace. Grace, grace, grace. It's all good. There's no rules. You live what you feel is right. You make up your truth for yourself. Who has the right to tell you what to do? Over my sabbatical, I read the book, Magnificent Obsession, Jesus. The gentleman quotes from John Stott, so I'll do the same. The idea that each person has a different view of truth. And that no one person has the right to challenge another as to the veracity of that belief is at the heart of the postmodern worldview. It is at the heart of idolatry. So, idol worship is essentially making your God your way with your own rules, with just a little bit of the Bible. And that can never be the Christian bent, it takes a whole Bible. To, to make a whole Christian. And we won't always get this right. All of us in this room. Will commit. Uh, idolatry. We will break that first commandment. But, but here's the point. The presumptuous Christian. Needs that. Their mind stirred to that. They need their mind stirred to that reality. Because a judgment might come. And Paul said. These things are an example for us. Sin number two. Which would disqualify one for the prize. Is sexual immorality. Now. It gets gets worse, right? Immorality will always follow idolatry. Who says? The Bible says. Romans 1. Although they knew God, they, they gave up the knowledge of the God and they began to worship created things, including themselves. And as a result of that, they gave themselves, you can read this in Romans 1 for yourself, they gave themselves the green light to indulge in all kinds of immoral behavior. Verse 8. We... And notice again, Paul is not being presumptuous here, is he? He knows that he ought to be careful too. He knows he could fall too. We should not commit sexual immorality. Uh, some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. And of course, this comes from the true history of Numbers chapter 25, a terrible story of how sexual immorality ran unfettered with the men of Israel until God came in wrath. Pornea is the word used by Paul for sexual immorality. The older translations would use the word fornication. And fornication is a mind and or bodily sexual impurity. So so it wasn't just physical sin that was being judged here in Numbers 25. It was equally the imaginary world of lusting in the mind. Right? Pornography, fantasy is the imaginary world where Christ is not Lord. Again, pornography, fantasy is the imaginary world where Christ is not Lord. So Paul says we must flee the lust in the imaginary world. And we must flee lust in the regular world, the real world. Now, original sin means every man and every woman will be tempted in this way. We all will be. That's hard to say, but it doesn't make it any less true. We will all be tempted in varying degrees in this way, but... I'm quoting now from a 1995 edict from the Church of England Evangelical Council, which I love. We are all summoned to various degrees of self-denial, for we are all summoned to follow the way of the cross. You see, loved ones, Corinth was a high-dollar, well-funded, sex-crazed city. It would be a hard road to tow for the Christian in that environment, just as it is now, as any honest person would admit. But since my sexual sin has an impact on me and my family and upon everyone in my sphere of influence, and since sexual sin, as recorded here, keeps me from being an effective evangelist, therefore it may hinder me from winning the prize, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says to himself, he says it to me, and he says to everyone who names the name of Christ don't follow that example. Don't play that game. Don't play that mind game. Don't think that you're so strong that nothing like that will ever happen to you physically or mentally. Don't think that. Now, before we go on to our final sin, number three, which I can't wait to get to, let's just think through this a minute, shall we? Because somebody has to think these things through. Somebody has to think, what does that mean for us in these days? Well, this is what we know for sure about life in the West, and the church in the West. This is what we know for sure. Number one, the baby boomer generation has the highest level of wealth in the history of the world. These are the experts. There will be, says many economists, the largest transfer of wealth, again, in the history of the world when they pass their dollars down. How good has God been by way of provision to that generation? However, quoting now, the baby boomers are drifting away. With their children grown, a major motivator for attending church is removed, right? Kids, false idol, right? Syncretism. Since 1991, this is from the Barna people. When we began collecting data, the baby boomers' church attendance has dipped by 38% since uh, in 2011. So you have a decrease in public worship. The article goes on that says the baby boomers become less and less active in serving in the ministry of the church as well. Add to that, and I'll stay with me, Psychology Today magazine article, March 5, 2014. The title is Baby Boomers Gone Wild. They quote the Centers for Disease Control. Among our senior citizen population, sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, are spreading like wildfire. Since 2007, incidence of syphilis among seniors is up by 52%. And another STD up 32%. And this isn't merely a phenomenon in the United States. As several recent British studies have produced similar results. Now let's stay with me. Great wealth. Great wealth. Massive decrease in public worship and service in that generation. And lots of leisure time. At the same time, statistically. And this is for every generation in the church. Those who profess faith in Christ fare no better with the leading moral issues than does the average pagan. Again, that's Barna, okay? At the same time, the biblical truth that Christ is the only way to God is believed by less than 35% of evangelical Christians in America. Again, synchronism. They don't believe their Bible. They want to make up a God in their head. At the same time, and you'll forgive me, pornographic material is, quote, online's first Consistently successful e-commerce product. So it says Donna Rice Hughes, who's now an advocate for family and child online safety. Quoting now from Free Speech Coalition, the adult internet is the fastest expanding segment of the U.S. adult entertainment market. One last quote from Damon Brown in a book that he wrote. I don't want to read you the title of the book, but I'm going to read you the quote from the book. It seems so obvious. If we invent a machine the first thing we're going to do after making a profit is use it to watch porn. When the projector was invented roughly a century ago, the first movies were not of damsels in distress tied to train tracks or Charlie Chaplin-style slapstick. They were stilted adult movie shorts called stag films. VHS became the dominant standard for VCRs largely because Sony wouldn't allow pornographers to use Betamax. The movie industry followed porn's lead, DVDs, Internet, cell phones, you name it, Pornography planted its big flag there first, or at least shortly thereafter. At the same time, we're thinking now, we're thinking this through, at the same time, over my sabbatical, I read at least three times how well-known, very popular men of God, pastors like me, had fallen prey to sexual immorality. In fact, the last article I read, I was at the kitchen table, I, I saw this headline, I clicked it to read it, my daughter was in the other room I read the name of the person who had fallen and I cried out oh god no not him finally now at the same time church attendance and personal evangelism both are at embarrassingly low levels in the west from people in every age and stage in life okay what's the point Well, my point is poised as a question to you. Question, is there a connection between all these things? Is there a connection? Read your Bibles. Read 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 and answer that question for yourself. But just know this. This is what Jesus said. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of God and the love for others, the love of most will grow cold. Will grow cold. Who cares about my neighbor? Who cares about these people that I lived with for 10 years? Paul is warning the presumptuous Christian in Corinth, come on, guys, stop all that. What kind of love is that? So is it any wonder then that 1 Peter 4.17 says that when God brings down his judgment, he starts with the church first? I mean, doesn't that make sense? 1 Peter 4.17, you can read that later. And you would ask, well, are we already under the judgment of God? Well, I don't know, and I'm not going to be one of those people who always say, we're under the judgment of God, we're under the judgment of God. They don't know that. I don't believe that, and I work against that. For the same reason why I don't, I don't want America to be doomed, and I, want, I don't want any nation in the world to be doomed. I just want people in that nation to be saved. So we say, God, please, please God, turn it around. But we know the data... I know my own evil heart. I know so many good men have given up on the church in America, and they say things like, "Well, the only thing way we're going to do it is uh, through legislation. That's the only way." Or they tell us, "Focus on the kids and third world countries. Kids, third world countries, because there's just no hope for the person in America to become a Christian." That's not true. I don't like that at all. They forget how merciful God is. They forget their Bible. They make up rules about evangelism that are not true. And they forget how merciful God is. Paul's point here then. These sins which disqualify us. If we don't deal with them ruthlessly. Like an athlete in training. I can't eat that. I have to go there. I've got to get to bed early. I'm sorry I can't go to that place because I'm in training. If we don't deal with those things there's no way we're going to get the prize. This is not about heaven and hell now. This is about the prize. This is the exaltation of Jesus Christ at the expense of the self. Verse 9 final sin We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Uh, Straightforward, right? A child could see this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. The original context of verse 9 is Numbers chapter 11. It's the same old story. Here we go. The people of God grumbling and complaining about God uh, through Moses, right? Just the same old thing. They wanted God to fall in line with all their demands and all their directives, and they beat down Moses for that. I want a God that fits me. I mean, that's the 21st century mindset, right? I don't want a God who I must bow to. I don't want a God who I must give an account to. I want a God who fits me, my time, my schedule, me, my thinking. Sometimes you hear it like this. Well, I don't like to think of God that way. Or I would rather think of God like, and more often than not, what is being said is, I want God to fit me. So the people of God in the Old Testament, they were trying God. They were saying things like, my kingdom come and my will be done, God. I'm dissatisfied with your providence. And you know what, God? I think you play favorites. Now, they would never say that. But in their testing, that's what they meant. And whenever we're tempted with sins like that, we are right where the people of God were in Numbers chapter 11. And listen to verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Boy, it was so great back there living in slavery. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Cry out to God for food. God gives them food from heaven. They want something else. Trying the patience of God. Testing God's patience. And the Bible is clear. God's patience can, and it will run out. So Paul's point is pretty simple. Don't push the patience of God. Don't test His limits. Don't be discontent with God's provision to you, the redeemed. Because there were Christians apparently going around in Corinth saying, you know what? This is not good, and this is horrible, and this is bad, and this is the age of grace. We are free to do whatever we want. How can I... Be more free. I mean, come on. So I can do whatever I like and still be okay with God. No, testing the patience of God. In fact, later on we're told in chapter 11, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians that because some people in the Corinthian church were trying God this way, because they refused to submit to His plans and His purposes, Paul says this, that's why many of you are weak, sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep dead. They were playing around with worship, communion, testing God's patience. Their ingratitude was so persistent. So as in the Old Testament, when the unchanging God came down, he came down in judgment. That way, to his own people. Now that's very hard to say, and that's very hard to hear. And we might say, that doesn't sound like the God of all grace that I know. And I'm thinking personally, this might be the first time that many of you have heard anything like this. So here's what I want you to know. This has always been true. Sin brings death. Sin brought death to Jesus Christ. Sin brings a physical death, yes. And sin will bring a spiritual death as well. So we will all live forever after our time on earth is complete. We'll all live forever, but where we will live, Depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. Accept his gift of life through repentance and faith by his death. Or reject him and live without him for all eternity. And a place the Bible describes, unfortunately, as hell. As hell. You should become a Christian if you're not. But every Christian should not tempt God. Hebrews 10 it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let me just close with this. If we are being tempted with the sin of idolatry, greed, life centered on the self, if we're being tempted by sexual immorality or trying the patience of God, just dissatisfied with God's providence and, and just always angry with Him, if we are being tempted in this way, two things. one, we know now why we may be ineffective, unwilling evangelists. Two, if we're being tempted in this way, look at verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under so we all have a choice, don't we? We have a choice that can say, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. Please have mercy on me. Please change me. Please make me more like yourself. Or we can say, eh, this isn't for me. Might be for them over there, and it might be for him behind the box. But it's not for me. Well, God has a reply for you as well. Would you look at your Bible, please? Verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful. (laughs) I mean, don't you hear the parent in this? Be careful. (laughs) Be careful that you don't fall. Well, God doesn't do stuff like that anymore. Well, First Corinthians ten says He does. Let's pray. God and Father, will you have mercy on all of us who need your mercy this morning? Will you work in all of us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ? Make us more willing and more able, if we need to be, in the great work of personal evangelism to a lost and dying, not just world, but community. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all those who name the name of Christ, which I pray is everyone in this room. Amen.